First Thessalonians chapter 5, we come to the end of this chapter where we've been into this chapter and towards the end of this book where we have been comforted along the way and challenged along the way about being what God wants us to be. And I'm glad that God has given us the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, that as a believer, aren't you, aren't you glad to know the Lord today? Aren't you glad that he's your anchor? And aren't you glad that God has taken care of you? And that he's always there for you. And uh, it's a blessing, no matter the circumstances, to be able to come back to your relationship with the Lord. And I think it's really important to know that this book of Thessalonians, and, and really the doctrine of the Bible, is not something simply to know. But God is working with that knowledge to shape us into the image of Christ, but also to draw us into a fellowship. A fellowship that is real. And when you come to the core of who we are in Christ... It is about being in fellowship with him. It's about walking with him and navigating this life, walking with your Lord. The Lord did not put you on the planet simply to accomplish tasks. He put you on the planet to know him, to glorify him, and to walk with him. And so discipleship has at its core understanding our fellowship with God. And that is never more going to be greatly emphasized in this way than what we're going to look at in these very, what I would call, empathetic uh, passages. These passages that work on us in holistic ways and with much specificity. So the Lord is going to direct in your heart and in your life regarding his will, and that is the nature of this passage this morning. So, by the way, I would just simply note that one of the great questions that many people have is about the will of God, right? Do you want to know the will of God? Wouldn't it be nice if God at times would just write it in the sky and say, here's my will? Well, this passage, at least these next several verses, while this theme has been uh, grounded, growing, and glory... This specific area of passage is going to be addressing God's will for his disciples. And so that really is the title of what's happening ahead. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you as we get started here, this is the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. And as I researched it, we often think of another verse that is the shortest verse of the Bible. And I would simply say that this verse in the Greek is tied with that verse. And if you ever wanted a verse, <clears throat> a verse that was, <clears throat> excuse me, easy to memorize, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is that verse. Let's do this. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 5, <clears throat> verses 16 through 18 out loud together. And these admonitions don't stop with verse 18, but we'll just take that context this morning. And I'm going to pre-warn you and prepare you that I have no intention of really moving beyond verse 16 today. Two words, and uh, we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about it. But would you read with me out loud 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, we're going to say this throughout this time, and I want to assure everyone here this morning 
that God is concerned about you. And God is concerned about you knowing his will. I do muse over this somewhat, though, when often when I've heard believers question and worry about what is God's will for my life, don't you think we would do well when God tells us what his will is to live within what he says his will is? And so I, I've often mused over that. We often wonder, well, what's God's will for me on this? And, and I, I would simply say, there are areas where God has certainly told us very clearly what his will is. And while you may not know what he wants to do in a circumstance, a particular circumstance, I think we would do well everywhere he's declared what his will is to focus on that. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. Now, this passage, I'm going to address this way. We've already read these verses. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. It goes further. But in those, I know that for many, when you read passages like this, to you it might seem like a series of impossible commands. And there is a, a sense of doubting when we come to these passages where our humanity, our, our carnal nature would re read, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. And we would almost be something like, yeah, right. Uh, there's an element of doubting that says, I don't even know how that's possible. How can I rejoice evermore? How can I pray without seeing? How can I do these things? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's what we're going to talk about today. So these are not impossible directives of God. Know that God is telling you this is his will for his children. This is God's will for you where you sit today. So what I want to start with, and it's a, it's a blessing to start in these series of discipleship admonitions for God's children, that he starts with an attitude, a heart disposition. And that heart disposition is what? Say it out loud. What is it? Rejoice evermore. This is the heart disposition that God wants his children to have. That really should be a marking difference between the believer and everybody else on the planet. So I've got a real hard question for you this morning. Are you rejoicing evermore? Another question is, are you rejoicing at all? It's often been said when song leaders come to the pulpit or when pastors come to the pulpit and you ask a question like this, are you happy in the Lord? I'll ask you, are you happy in the Lord? See, just like that. <laughs> Are you happy in the Lord or not? <laughs> it's often been said by those song leaders, well, if you're happy in the Lord, tell your face about it, <laughs> okay? Because uh, sometimes you come to church and, uh, and you got the, <laughs> I'm going to do it and some of you guys are going to say, he's talking about me. Uh, <laughs> you'll have the folded arms, you'll have the furrowed disposition and the lack of a smile throughout. And it's like, you know, I do know this. One of the blessings of coming together with God's people is that we are challenged in the word of God with how we're thinking and how we're living. And in the attitude of worship this morning, this isn't coming. Now, don't, don't be, I hope you won't be offended. But this isn't, as you've seen, this, this is not a praise band that's trying to get you excited about God. Uh, the closest we came to that was uh, a trumpet that could barely get half the notes. 
and a trombone that did get some of the others. Um, this isn't about trying to evoke any emotion out of you, but yet in that same sense, God is at work on you emotionally. God did not call you to be a people who are not emotionally involved with life around you, that you're so somehow spiritually whatever that you're not emotional about the things of your life. God knows that you are an emotional being. He created you as such. And you feel it every day. The problem is many of us live as if our emotions were king and that there's no way to affect our emotion. And so therefore our emotions, whatever they are, we live declaring that that emotion is a reality of my life. And as it were, we're trapped. I'm emotionally this. I'm going to tell you that as fallen individuals, we're emotionally broken. And we live with that every day. We, we have dispositions and thoughts and attitudes that are wholly not of God, but because we as carnal beings are, are, are living with a response to this world, we often let that emotional response be the declared reality. And God wants to affect your emotional reality this morning. And it's all going to be based on your relationship with him. And for whatever reason, I'm clipping in and out, Daniel. So I'll stay right here. Um, but this passage, we need to start then with the definition. So defi defining rejoicing is a Greek word, we would say it, chairo. Uh, there's a hard ch at the, at the front of that, which is but I don't want to clear my nose. So it's, uh, it's chairo. Uh, the word for joy in Greek is charis or charis. It's where our daughter Carissa gets her name. She's named after the Greek word for joy. But Cairo is the word for rejoice. And it means to be glad. It means to be glad exceedingly so. It's as if you've got a cup of coffee and you filled it so full that it dribbles out when you walk because that's how you want your cup of coffee. Because that's what joy is in life. No, it's not. But it's a, it's a happy thing. Matter of fact, as I walked out the door, my wife said, don't spill it. Uh, but I do. Every, matter of fact, there's a stain right there. Uh, sorry, babe. Um, but it's to be exceedingly glad, not just to have the dribbles in the bottom of the cup, but to be exceedingly glad. Now, as I begin to ask, to ask this, every one of us begins to assess ourselves, right? And, and I know that many of you are thinking, if there was ever a message where I needed to smile back at pastor, it's now, uh, to show that I am joyful. The truth is, no matter what you are right now, this truth is going to be a part of the fabric of your life in the future as well. Now, if you came this morning and you're not joyful, I want to tell you not only what God's will is, but God's desire for you and his motivating power in your life will enable you to be, not just for today, but for tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. In other words, not to live in the emotional uh, infant stage of letting simply 
your emotions declare who you are without any ability to address your emotional uh, status of the day. So it is to be glad. It is to be exceedingly so. It is to be well in the sense of a thriving wellness. Now, this thriving wellness is not talking about your physical life in the sense of, I don't experience sickness, but it has the sense of this thriving wellness. This, uh, it's the fragrance of your life that fills a room. There's a wellness about you. Okay? We often understand it as being someone who is cheerful. It does have in its flavor to be calmly happy, to be calmly happy or well. So when I start talking about rejoicing, there are many of you that think that you need to somehow walk around with your eyebrows super glued up two inches and always that surprised, happy look on your face. I believe that God can work that disposition into the life of a believer. But there's another side of this that is a calm, steadfast cheer, a calm, steadfast happiness. Now, so much uh, was this a desirable uh, attitude of life that in our New Testaments, that it was often in the Greek culture, it was often used as a greeting or a parting. And it was something along the lines of you loved being with somebody, and as you're leaving, be well. Hey, do well. Hey, be happy this week. Be blessed this week. It's the, it's the cheer of attitude that says, I want your life to be blessed, rejoicing, and filled with happiness. That's how the greeting came about. Now, if we're going to study it, though, we would do well to study this word. It's used like 73, 74 times in our New Testament. And as we examine it, I'm going to examine just a few passages to see where that word is used. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. And then we're going to go to Luke uh, 19 at the end of the verse, end of the chapter. And then we're going to step into John for one passage as well. So illustrated, this, this rejoicing is illustrated in these passages. Now I want you to imagine that you are someone that is not well liked by society. Uh, someone that is, uh, I remember one political party calling the other political party deplorables. I won't say which one, but... Uh, uh, and, and it's going through life with this attitude that uh, maybe people really don't care about you and don't like you. There is someone like that that we're going to read about here in Luke chapter 19. His name is Zacchaeus. And we just recently studied this passage, so I'm not going to read it all uh, this morning. But Zacchaeus was a publican, which was a tax collector. And he was particularly a tax collector of the Jews. And uh, one of the Jews, a tax collector of the Jews, and uh, he was the chief among them. So in other words, he was good. By the way, by the way, can I say on that? Do any of you like taxes? It happens every year that I, I have to do mine because mine are of a nature I cannot file online. I have to file hardcore papers. I just got my taxes back last week before I left for this trip, which were filed on time in April. And they've been doing this to me every year. I, I send to them what I'm supposed to get back, and, and, and either they deny the whole thing or they cut it in half, and I'm rejoicing. 
the fight is on. I'm rejoicing. Um, the tax collector was not someone that was a pleasant, a pleasantly viewed personality. In this passage, in Luke 19, verse 5, and when Jesus came, Luke 19, 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, he looks up in this tree and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Now, I better turn to that passage because I don't think I have the rest of the verse. It says, isn't it the next verse that says Zacchaeus' attitude on that? And he made haste and came down, and what does it say? He received him joyfully. That's your word. That's your word in the Greek. That's the joyful, or that's the rejoicing. He received him joyfully. It's this idea that somebody important paid attention to you when you were the least person on the planet that you thought would receive such attention. So when he receives it, now think, again, you, you would have to get into that context. If there was anybody in the crowd that Jesus was going to recognize, Zacchaeus, not only, not only being little, least of stature or little of stature, he was the least of which anybody thought that Jesus would want to spend time with. And Jesus singles him out and says, we're going to go eat together and spend some time together. So how does he respond? He's immediately overwhelmed with this special sense of being chosen this privilege that was given to him. Well, that's the rejoicing. That's the rejoice flavor. Look at uh, Luke chapter 19 at the end of the passage. And this is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. <clears throat> and in Luke 19, verses 37 and 38, <clears throat> excuse me, we read of this rejoicing as well. Verse 37, and when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to, here's your word, rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now remember, what was the expecta expectation of the disciples about Jesus being the Messiah? Their expectation that he was going to set up his reign and reestablish Israel as predominant at that time. So what kind of rejoicing would they have had? Uh, not only is this the king of kings, not only is this the Messiah, but their expectation that he's going to set up reign. Well, there is this rejoicing at his coming. They rejoice and praise God how? It says, with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Is Can you really read in scripture any greater point where God's glory is being magnified and, and he's being worshipped for who he is. The flavor, the context, now is the time that Jesus is going to do all that he said he would do. Recognizing him for who he is, recognizing him for what he would do, and rejoicing in anticipation over the moment that this is the time. Let me ask you, will there be rejoicing when we step foot in heaven? The Bible says there is rejoicing amongst the angels it is, it is a, a rejoicing moment when a believer passes this world, and to use what we said earlier this morning, graduates into glory. There's rejoicing in heaven over that moment. Not only over the angels, but we rejoice. We'll be rejoicing when we step into the presence of God. What will our attitude be when Jesus comes again? 
What will our attitude be? Our attitude will be one of excited rejoicing, and I would go on to say, I think, bewilderment to be snatched away, as the end of 1 Thessalonians teaches, and to be rushed in the twinkling of an eye into the presence of our great God and King. That's an awesome thing. This is the flavor. This is the flavor of knowing who Jesus is, knowing what he's going to do, and anticipating that this is the moment. Okay? You go to John chapter 20. Jesus' appearance to the disciples after his death. <clears throat> John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 19 and 20. John 20, 19 and 20. <clears throat> then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. John 20, verse 20. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Would you read the last part of verse 20 out loud with me? Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Where's your word rejoice? The word is glad. So interpreters could have given, then the disciples rejoiced. So what kind, now listen, what kind of gladness? He who was slain is alive and standing in their midst. His first words, now I, I don't know. I don't know why the Lord did what he did, but my thought is they were alarmed to see him, and, and his first words are, peace, be still. But at seeing him and seeing his hand, seeing his side, here is their resurrected Savior. You and I can only imagine at that moment. It's hard for us contextually to really grasp this. Now, I think it's something like this, though. It's, it's the spirit. There are other places where this word is used over that which was lost and is found. This is, this is that, if you'll forgive my illustration, especially on this day, this is that child coming home from college. This is, this is that, uh, th that, maybe it's not nice to illustrate this way, that puppy that was lost but now is found. This is, this is literally the idea of Scripture. It's an overwhelming happiness at something that was not in your presence and has been restored to you. Happy stuff. You've got to go be back with family. You've got to be in the presence again. It's, it's, a, it's a warm and happy time. Now, this is all the flavor of the word rejoice. Are you rejoicing? Are you rejoicing? And more importantly, are, are you rejoicing by the descriptives of the word as we see it in Scripture. Number one, we've looked at the definition of rejoicing. Number two, we've looked at the illustrations of those words in several passages, of which there were many more. Number three, I want to ask this question. Does this mean that a believer is never sorrowful or never suffers. Well, you would say no, but I'm going to tell you
that most of you that would say no are saying no, not because your knee-jerk is to reflect it in Scripture, but you know it as a believer experientially. Now, both are true. But you know as a believer that you have not always rejoiced. Not, well, maybe a better way to say it is you have not always had the sense of rejoicing. There are times in your life where sorrow hits heavily. Now, how do we know this is true? Well, experience is one thing, but I always think it's best to go back to the authority of scriptures. And it's twin verse I've already referenced. This verse in Greek, I think I counted, it's either 12 or 13 letters. The other words, the other verse in Greek, that is 12 or 13 letters, is that other passage that most know as the shortest verse of the Bible. And in our English translation, it is. It's John eleven thirty-five. 35. You know what the verse says? What does it say? Right. That's the twin Greek shortest word or shortest verse in the Bible. Now, what was the occasion of Jesus' weeping? What well, was Lazarus' death? And on, in the passage says, on seeing those sorrowing over Lazarus' death. And in my mind, it was always confusing, and I don't know that I have it settled today. Was Jesus weeping over the sorrow that others felt? Or was he weeping over the sin stain and its effect on causing Lazarus to die? I don't know. But regardless, Jesus, God on earth, was emotionally affected and wept. Well, does that then, see, Jesus wept, does that make this command, this direction of God and his will for your life void and of no effect? Because even Jesus wept. Well, as we understand, rejoicing is running like a current. And it, that current never stops. That current is always there. Even in the circumstantial moments of sorrow being visited upon the life. So even in sorrow, there is still this current of rejoicing that is pulling your attitude out of sorrow. Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. You don't need to turn there. Matter of fact, you better to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And Acts chapter 5 verse 41 says, And they departed, this is Peter and the apostles, after they had uh, been admonished uh, about preaching in Jesus' name. And they departed from the presence of the council, and here's the word, again, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So even in the midst of standing before authorities and being hammered by the authorities saying, uh, you're not to speak in his name, you're an uproar to the city, you're everything, we're not, whatever they said, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. So even in that circumstance of not an easy time, there's the current that's drawing them to a disposition of rejoicing. Now you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. Rejoice evermore is our passage. 
And we're answering the question thirdly on our list after definition of rejoicing and illustrating passages of rejoicing. We're answering what about the believer experiencing sorrow? Does this mean that if I'm rejoicing evermore that I'll never experience heaviness of sorrow? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, But in all things, Paul is talking through what he has suffered in ministry, in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much what? Patience, afflictions, necessities, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, fastings, he goes on in verse 6, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful, say the next three words, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Rejoice evermore. Impossible command? doubting its veracity and its ability to be true in the life of a believer because how can it be when there is sorrow? Well, what we see is that this command is possible even when sorrow is present. <laughs> I debated. I, you know, I hope all of us debate what we put on Facebook. But some of you know, and I debated before I put it because I thought, well... Maybe it's going to come across as being a big baby. But I put, I don't even know exactly the words. I'll, I'll try to remember exactly what I said. I think I said something like, um, something about feeling hollow and that lump in your throat. Feelings of hollowness and a lump in your throat. And this was dropping Lydia and Jonathan off at college. And I usually do pretty well as long as I don't talk about it like I am right now. <laughs> but when I did, and usually my coping strategy is laughter and, and humor. Um, but I found myself, I was sitting on an airplane, and I, and I, and I wasn't act, actually being aware of what I was thinking of in the sense of I felt the emotion before I realized what I was thinking about. And I, and I stopped and said, why am I, oh, I know why I feel this way. And it comes and it goes. And, and, and these things are, are true in our reality. That we feel this. So do we take that circumstance and then say, see, I've got every reason not to rejoice. Now listen, folks. I'm going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag where I'm going with the rest of this passage. You know, many of you, that I'm a huge proponent of 2 Corinthians 10.5 being true in the life of a believer. This passage says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And here's what we don't do. 
We don't screen our thoughts by the Word of God. We legitimize our thoughts by our feelings. And it's wrong. And it doesn't mean that by screening all of my thoughts through Christ that I will not feel sorrow. Jesus felt sorrow. But it does mean that even when there's sorrow, there is a current of rejoicing in my life that God does and God commands and God enables that has to be reconciled to the life of the believer. And what happens so often is we've legitimized our thought as the excuse for why it's okay for me to live in this condition. And we are many times then the authors of our own continual suffering by not being obedient to the Lord. Now, it's gonna, if that was not heavy yet, it's going to be. So I want to reference 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10 one more time before we move to the last point. As sorrowful, and the phrase is this, yet always rejoicing. An unbroken, unending thread in the life of the believer. Okay. Our fourth and last point is that 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, rejoice evermore is a command. And that command <clears throat> is a command of constancy in your life. With me? Let's, let's all be here together. That command is a command of constancy in your life. No matter where you are. Now, I hope that we are having a heart-to-heart -heart right now. So I don't know where you are. And I don't know what you've got going on. But you're a human being and there's probably every reason to believe that you've got some form of trouble in your life. Our world is fraught with it. And we often say if you want to be encouraged, if you're not in trouble yet, you're going to be. We often uh, joke over the fact that uh, it's, it's, we're, we're born to trouble as we know in Job. As the sparks fly upward. By the way, can I say it was good to come back home and see a lot of the smoke gone? Praise God. <clears throat> I have to write things down or I will not remember later. This rejoice evermore is a command that's throughout Scripture and I'm going to take a little bit of time with this, and I, I, again, I hope we're having a heart-to-heart -heart here. So I'm going to give you some passages. Two are in Philippians, if you want to turn there, because I think I'll be quick, but I do want to make the point. <coughs> this command <coughs> is reiterated in other passages, and again, for us to know that God would not give us a command that he will not empower us to do. Are you with me? God will not give you a command that is impossible to do. So what I'm trying to do at this very moment is stop you 
and to stop me from living in the place. But if only you knew what I was dealing with, you would not even be preaching over. Do you know what's been going on in my life? <clears throat> Is the idea. Do you know what I've been dealing with? And we'll legitimize our emotion and we just live there. And let me tell you, that's what unsaved people do. Our world is living on individual emotion and individual belief of I'm right, everybody else is wrong, and I'm better than everybody else, everybody else is wrong. And willing to, I mean, our world is so bent that way, we're willing to see people die just to get them out of my way. But this is not the life of a believer. A believer can fall back to living in that condition if you do not obey the Lord. And I'm going to call it exactly that. Philippians 3.1 <clears throat> Philippians 3.1 Finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And obviously the front part of that verse is our anchor point. Finally, my re brethren, rejoice in the Lord, period. Rejoice in the Lord. It's hard to imagine a message where you're standing before God's people and you're in a rebuking sense saying, rejoice. It's hard to imagine a message like that. But this is the sense of the command. It is a powerful admonition in the life of the believer. If you are not rejoicing, hello, are you with me? If you're not rejoicing, get there. But, but, no, listen, listen, you've got to stop. You cannot just say, but I've got this, but I've got that. And by the way, when we do that, the arrogancy is, Nobody else in the world has gone through what I've gone through. Nobody else understands my life and what I'm dealing with uh, like I do. And I, if you did, you would understand that I could not do this. And I would say what we need is a great deal of worship, a great deal of surrender, and a great deal of humility of giving yourself over to God and obeying the command, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, a chapter later, again gives you the direction of how a believer rejoices. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. And you know how it goes. You could say it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, could that be any more clear? Could that be any more clear? It's said and it's underscored emphatically that this is a command of God, something you can do, something you should do, something you need to do, and something that God is empowering you to do. Let me remind everybody here that this would be impossible if it were not for the indwelling nature of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit because of your redemption, you would be like everybody else left to your own resource, left to your own ability. But thank God we're not. And by the way, what is the name of the Holy Spirit given in the New Testament, in the Gospels? What is his name? His name is Comforter. 
We understand his name to be an encourager. He is the one who embraces you. He is the one who upholds you. He is the one who empowers you. And you need a message like this. I need a message like this to know that I have every reason to be rejoicing. And it's because I am in the Lord. A Christian's joy and foundation for rejoicing does not come or spring from the circumstantial happenings of life. A Christian's joy or foundation of rejoicing comes from the blessedness of fellowship with Christ, of our union with him. One commentary said it this way, now listen, if it was ever abrupt and ever to the point, this commentary says it this way. The Christian who remains in sadness and sorrow and depression really breaks a commandment. In some direction or other, he mistrusts God, he doubts his power, he questions his providence, or disbelieves his forgiveness. In some way, the non-rejoicing Christian who lives in that state of sorrow, listen well, is in a place of disobedience, stronger word, and an unwelcome word, is in a place of disobedience and rebellion. So I've got a question for you. (laughs) Is God trustworthy? Let me ask it differently. You with me? Let's have eyeballs and be friends. Is God good to you? I have to think sometimes. Any of you ever tried to convince a teenager of something they didn't believe? Did you win? (laughs) I have totally played this card. I've totally played this card. When I've been talking to a teenager, I've been trying to convince, and they are not coming to my side. (laughs) I'm saying, listen, do you really think any other person on on this planet loves you more than I do? Well, besides your mother and me. I said, do you really think think there is a greater advocate in your life than your mom and your dad? Do you think I'm trying to step into your life and hurt your life? Have any of you ever had a conversation like that with a teenager? They weren't my teenagers. Oh, yes, they were. (laughs) The truth is, at some point, Our thinking goes to the place, God doesn't love me, God does not have this in control, God is messing up my life, and if I was obedient to God, it'd mess up my life even more. 
I, I got to ask you, is God trustworthy? Then why don't we live like it? Why don't we act like it? I'm going to tell you it's a matter of disobedience and a matter of surrender. If you want to boil it down, it's a matter of fellowship and worship. Not just worshiping here in this room and singing about Jesus, but will you worship him and surrender to him and know that he is good? I've got to believe that when Joseph was in the pit, thrown in there by his brothers, it wasn't exactly a, a time in his life where he was singing, I've got the joy, joy, joy. I, I, I really doubt it. When he stands for God and resists temptation from Potiphar's wife and flees and has done the right thing and then finds himself in jail, I don't think this is a time in his life where he's waving the flag of, this, this is good stuff. It's hard. But God has a plan, and God is working that plan in your life, not just the world, but in your life. Is he trustworthy? Some people believe, well, I can't trust that if I do what God says that it's going to work out. It really becomes a relationship thing. Now, our message is done, but you, I, I'm going to tell you, there, there are a couple notes I wrote that I didn't want to forget to tell you. I just wanted to add this last thing. Why is it that there is sometimes not rejoicing? I'm going to boil this down quickly. Rejoicing, as I said, often comes back to 2 Corinthians 10.5, at least as one verse that would apply this. What you and I, listen, I'm going to tell you, I can save you from hours and hours and hours and hours of counseling if you will listen to what I'm going to say right now. And I'm going to save you a lot of money from all that counseling. Okay? One of the reasons that we stay in a place of depression and stay in a place of sadness is because we have not let the Lord take captive our thoughts and we entertain every thought as if it was reality. And all of your thoughts are not reality. Hello? One of the thoughts I have to reject is, I'm not Superman. No. That was a joke, okay? Uh, badly, badly attempted. Just because we think something doesn't make it our reality. But you can make it your reality. You can walk around the planet with, oh no, what's going to happen? Oh no, what's going to happen? Oh no, what's going to happen? And that can become your reality. You can walk the planet doubting that God is in charge and God is good and you can live in that reality, but it's not true. It's not true, but you can live with that reality. Why would you? Because you're in a habit of thinking, if I think something is so, it must be. 
And no, it doesn't must be. I don't know how you're supposed to say that, but there it is. So please listen. The counseling is this. Screen your thoughts by the person of Jesus. Screen your thoughts by the word of God. It's one thing to have sorrow come upon your life. It's another thing to stay there. So I'm going to give you something that will help you. Are you ready? Counseling part two. Counseling part one. Screen your thoughts, my paraphrase, screen your thoughts by Jesus, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Second, listen, and what I'm going to tell you not only will help you emotionally, but it will build your relationships and it's something that we'll visit again in the future. I hope I have your attention. Learn to thank God for what is there and not what is not. Learn to thank God for what is there. Instead, another way of saying it, of being sorrowful for what is not. All right? So, to me... <clears throat> I hope this message has been beneficial to you. I, I don't know, but I, I find it interesting for me. At a time where I would need a message like this, God makes me preach it. And I need it. Now, I don't think it's wrong to cry. I happen to be probably the world's ugliest crier. But... I don't think it's wrong to cry. I don't think it's wrong to have sorrow visit your life. But I'm going to tell you just applicationally, this is how it works. And I'm going to tell you, I may go home today and I may cry. I don't know. But when I was thinking about my kids leaving the house, you see, i got to be careful because I start talking about them. Little Joe, <laughs> the day after we left, Lydia calls and she, I think she was calling and talking to Joe, and Joe said, are you coming home yet? Or something like that. It was the day after we had left. And then Nora sent a message where Joe said two things, and I don't think I'll get it just right, but I like the first one. He said, he said, I miss daddy, and I like, I like daddy. And then how did he say the other part? He said, he said, where did all the people go? <laughs> we had to take a leaf out of our dining room table <laughs> for the first time in forever. But I'm thankful my kids know the Lord. I'm thankful that they're adults following God's plan. <laughs> I'm thankful that God has a plan for them. And by the way, as much as we want to keep them with us, that would not be healthy, would it? For either of us. 
Are you with me? Thank God for what's there. Thank God for what's there. Thank God for what's there. Now, I told you this is going to come up in the future, but I'm going to tell you in relationships, this is a big deal. Some of you are unhappy with your relationships because all you see is what's not there. And you live with that reality. You think over that reality and you live it and live it and live it and live it. Stop. <laughs> Probably the third Sunday in a row that I've, I've given counseling advice of stop it. <laughs> and you know that God's working on me, right? Okay, but, but this is the truth. And what I've just told you is meant to change us forever. Rejoicing evermore is something that you can do. And it's something that God has empowered you to do. Now, I love you, church family, and I know you love me. We all need this message together. But let's leave this place. And by the way, you know, I, I'm going to tell you right now, I, I kind of feel like I'm in a, in a rough spot, and here's why. I'm not shaking anybody's hand particularly today. I've not hugged anybody today because I've been flying, and I've been in this world of traffic, of going hither and yon, and I have no idea. So I'm really trying to protect you by not getting close to you. But if there was ever a time I wanted to hug everybody, today is the day. <laughs> it's, like, it's like me picking up Joe. I pick up Joe, and I hug Joe, and Joe can tolerate that for about two seconds and say, can I get down? But Joe, dad means this. What is wrong with dad? <laughs> you know? <laughs> thank God for what's there. And I want to say thank you today. You're my church family. And by the nature of how God has made us, you are medicine for me today. And that medicine wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Christ. So this really comes back to being all about him. All about him.